Let's go inside under my skin. You come around the other way. A dream I had of spinning 30 years in one day. It's not too late. Hello and welcome to another edition of Act in Context podcast. I am your co-host, John DeLynn, here with Jennifer Plum. Hey, Jennifer. Hello. How's Seattle treating you? Pretty good. Is it sunny or rainy? Sunny. Nice. Surprisingly, yeah. Nice. Well, good. Well, um, uh, things keep rolling. We have another exciting episode ahead for our listeners. Yes, we do. I'm really excited. As always. And um, the the downloads and the um, subscriptions, I guess, keep growing. So I think the podcast mm-hmm. is doing well. Mm-hmm. I think so. I, I'm getting good feedback. And uh, people who are listening, go ahead and keep posting to our Facebook page for suggestions you might have. We're still scheduling additional podcasts for topics that you might be interested in hearing about. So we've got some flexibility. So let us know your interests and or a particular person that you'd like us to talk to. That's the acting context Facebook page, right? Acting context on Facebook. All yep. right, all right. Well, let's um, let's dive into today's topic because it's uh, kind of fun. Um, we have with us today Dr. Louise Hayes. Hi, Louise. Hi, John. Hi, Jen. Hello. <laughs> Hello. And if you guys can't tell yet, uh, Dr. Hayes <laughs> is from Chicago. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> almost. <laughs> No, Way down I'll, south in Melbourne. <laughs> little, little south of Chicago? Mm, little. <laughs> Southwest? Okay. Um, no, Dr. Dr. Hayes um, is a clinical psychologist. She received her PhD from RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. And she works as an academic with the University of Melbourne and has special interest in adolescent mental health, which will be our emphasis today. And she also has some experience with child and parent mental health. Um, Luis's professional training was grounded in using ABA. What do you mean by ABA? Applied Behavior Analysis. Okay, good old behavior analysis for parent training and child interventions. So um, lots of uh, behaviorists are listening to this podcast, I'm guessing, so that's good. Um, uh, Now, Luis is an ACT trainer who is part of the... Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, or ACBS. Hopefully our listeners know what ACBS is by now, right, Jen? Oh, yeah. I hope so. If not, you can go to the website, contextualpsychology.org. All right. And check. And it's a new website. It's a new and improved website. By mm-hmm. the way. Very fancy. Anyway, Louise is part of the training community for ACBS. She conducts workshops for professionals on using ACT for adolescents, those pesky teenagers that I actually have two of myself. <laughs> So I'm excited to hear about how to deal with my teenagers. Uh, Luis also works in private practice at a family medical center, again, mostly with adolescents. Her, the key aspects of her recent work um, include co-authoring a book on ACT for Teens with Joseph Joseph Shirochi. How do you pronounce that? Cherokee. Cherokee. And Ann Bailey. Cherokee. Oh, did, am I saying it wrong? No, you're saying it right. Okay. Joseph Cherokee. I've met I'm Joseph. just saying it with I've an met, Australian accent. <laughs> I've, I've actually met Joseph, but I still forget how to pronounce his name. 
Anyway, this book does. with her, Joseph, and Anne is entitled Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life for Teens, which is due uh, for release in 2012. She was also the principal investigator on treatment studies that have tested ACT with adolescents. These were funded by Beyond Blue, which is Australia's National Depression Initiative. In this series of studies, Louise tested ACT for adolescents with depression who were being treated in a public mental health services facility, I'm guessing, and Mm -hmm. um, also tested ACT in schools or high schools using a group program, which sounds fascinating. So again, Louise, welcome to ACT in Context podcast. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jen. Thank you for inviting me. And I hope my Australian accent is not too difficult for you. Oh, we'll, we'll ask you to translate if, uh, if need be. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> okay. no, we, we Americans love to hear foreign accents. It's yep, just right. it's music. It's mellifluous. It's music to our ears. <laughs> oh, that's not what people usually say about the Australian accents. But that's great. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking well, to. Well, if they like it, they'll love it. And if they don't like it, it's an exercise in acceptance. Great. <laughs> <Right. laughs> oh, very good. All right. Well. Louise, uh, you confessed to us right before we started the podcast that you've actually listened to some of our previous episodes, which we're glad to hear. Mm -hmm. And so you probably know how we begin, which is by asking you to tell us a bit about your background and how you came to both psychology and to act, because it sounds like you've been doing this for a little bit. So why don't you give us a little bit of introduction? Sure. Um... I have been doing this for a little bit, ACT for a little bit, um, but how I came to psychology was a bit around a, um, a roundabouts way. This is my second career. My previous career was as a retail executive, but then I was fortunate enough to have two wonderful little boys and I really couldn't go back to that kind of a career that was a lot of work and a lot of hours and a lot of travel overseas. So I had the opportunity to go to university. I didn't go when I was younger. And um, psychology was just one of those subjects I picked up and liked. Nice. And it was just an accident, really. You know, I'm I'm beginning to sense a trend of uh, people who've had, uh, (laughs) who get to act as a second career, if not intended to be that way. Basically, me, me, Russ, and Louise. Is that the trend? Yeah. Are those the three data points? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh, there's more than three. Three is a trend and there's more that we know about. (laughs) There is more. There is more. (laughs) But maybe you can uncover this as you do the intros in the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's how I came to it and I, I left school quite early. In fact, I left school at 14. Um, wow. And so my university degree was something that came very late in life and has been an absolute pleasure as well as having two um, kids. And a couple, now I have a couple of teenagers like you, John. Oh, wow. All right. So you and yours are, yours are sons. At home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yours are sons con- and mine are yeah. daughters. Yes, and mine are constant participants in my work. They're the ones who can tell me when it's terrible. Ha, nice. Huh. You do like the, the cool check. Is this cool mm. enough? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they can be very critical when they need to be. <laughs> Mom, that's sure. lame. Yeah. How well, did you know it? that is exactly what they say? Do they John? say lame? Yeah, lame. Mom, that's lame. You can't do that. <laughs> lame is the kiss of death, huh? <laughs> yeah, it is. Gotcha. So, um, how, and so how I came to act? Yeah. 
how I came to act is my university PhD was in a um, department that focused a lot on parent training and they did a lot of applied behaviour analysis in parent training and it was very strong in that area and I chose the RMIT university because I was particularly interested in parent training and then uh, for some reason I went along to a Steve Hayes workshop in Melbourne in I think it was 2003 and I was really... um, overwhelmed by the workshop it was quite amazing had all this wonderful geeky data which I just loved Steve had all data slides that sounds Um, like Steve (laughs) I really loved the data but what I really liked as well as the data was that there was this human who was presenting who was talking about um, being a human and suffering and that was not Mm -hmm. something that I was really aware of in in fact, I was under the impression that we needed to somehow get rid of our suffering in order to be good psychologists. Mm. So I was kind of pleased that that didn't have to happen. Thank and goodness. A big burden, huh? <laughs> big burden <laughs> removed. <laughs> Absolutely. I did feel like an enormous weight was removed. Yeah. But it was just such a great workshop and really opened my eyes to a different way of doing clinical psychology. And I've been hanging around there ever since. Mm-hmm. Great. And now you, you, Australia has a very large um, ACBS community. Um, there's a big Australian and New Zealand chapter down there, right? There is indeed, and we have our own conference. I'm not sure how many members we have in Australia at the moment, um, but we've had, had many hundreds and hundreds of people trained. Yeah. Um, as you know, from Russ, Russ Harris has done a lot of the training. Mm-hmm. But we have our own conference down here as well. I think we're into the fourth year. We have our conference coming up in Brisbane in about four weeks' time. Mm-hmm. And I think we get three to 400 people at the conference. Yeah, last year you guys had over 300. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. How many came yeah. to Parma? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and Palmer too. Um, mm. So we have a lot of Aussies who do ACT work and we have a lot of Aussies who do ACT work with children and adolescents too. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a big focus on children and adolescent work in, in Australia for some unexplained reason. Hey, working on uh, helping people perhaps mm. suffer less if you catch them early. Oh, that's what we'd hope to do. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe learn that suffering is okay. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Mm. Okay. So, so you got into ACT through seeing Steve, um, Steve present, huh? Yeah. And were, you, were, you, were you a researcher at the time? or I was a researcher. I was working at a parenting research center and quite a number of the people had been along to, a number of my colleagues had been along to a Kelly Wilson workshop. And we're talking constantly about ACT. And I just hung around for the first ACT workshop to see what it was all about. Nice. Gotcha. And it certainly has made a change to mm-hmm. my life. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And to my, and to my work. To both. Mm. Do you mind if I ask, do you, feel, do you feel like the principles have helped you as a parent? Oh, yes. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah. Um, because um, I think one of the things that happens when you become a parent is that you, when you give birth to children, whether you're the mother or the father, I think guilt comes along with that. Um, <laughs> it's in the package, huh? <laughs> there, it's a package that go together. Um, uh-huh. Guilt and um, also a, a really strong need to feel that you want to give your beautiful little children the best that you possibly can and the guilt comes along when inevitably we don't do the best that we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ACT um, 
can make significant contributions in how parents understand that process mm-hmm. and how they accept the mistakes that they make and accept their strengths and mm-hmm. be able to um, really connect with their kids and what they value about being parents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Such an important move. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And it's a nice add-on to traditional parent training. Mm-hmm. I where bet. we have such good empirical research in parent training, but it's nice to add that ACT component onto it as well, I think. I think we'll see some big changes in the future, I hope. Well, let's, Great. let's talk about that. So I guess, I guess it could be valuable for those of our listeners who really don't know much about working with adolescents to begin by sort of talking about the lay of the land in, in working with adolescents kind of prior to the arrival of ACT. Uh, if you want to touch briefly on you know, a, a little bit of the historical background of, of of dealing with adolescents prior to kind of whatever the state of the art um, might be, again, prior to ACT arriving. And then after we talk, kind of talk about the lay of the land, then we can talk about what ACT kind of does to improve or enhance uh, the field. Sure, sure. Um, I think the lay, of, if the lay of the land in before ACT um, came along was really very much like working with adults. It's largely using CBT um, and approaching the work from a skills training, problem solving um, type of approach to working with adolescents, teaching them how to um, recognise automatic thoughts, how to um, problem solve and how to um, develop skills for coping. I think ACT adds on a very strong component of looking at uh, emotion and acceptance of emotion and that whole focus on the normality of our suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, so traditional CBT, um, I think, um, was more focused on teaching skills. Mm-hmm. That's the way I see the difference yeah. in terms of my training and how I approach CBT with adolescents. Sure. What about other approaches like... Um like a family systems approach. Has, is, was that something that was big in Australia? For, for, yes. Or is that something that's still... Yeah, because I, I think particularly when you're dealing with um, young people who are still interacting with parents on a daily basis, living under their roof, um, I've seen a lot of work with systems approaches. Do you see ACT? Do you see a home for ACT there as well? Absolutely. And family therapy is the other area of... Um, of adolescent work that's important to consider and family Mm -hmm. therapy continues to be really important Mm -hmm. and the systems approach continues Mm -hmm. to be really important Um, and ACT as we talked about before with parenting work um, what it adds to parent training adds the same thing in terms of working with a family in the room Mm -hmm. Um, I think we can add that level of um, psychological flexibility if you like of acceptance of emotions and um, working together from a values place of understanding what's important to each of the members within the within the group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So right. family therapy and CBT were the kind of the two traditional areas, and family mm-hmm. therapy continues to be done. And of course, with ACT, we we shift the focus on what we're working on, but we're working with a family in the room together. Mm-hmm. So, so what you know, if you don't mind, um, you know, sort of touching upon how all of these processes we've now talked about in our podcasts um, in the ACT model can be, you know, what's a typical sort of conceptualization of, of the kinds of things you might address with sure. an adolescent, for example. We can start there. Um, okay. 
Great. Um, and I think it is important to talk about adolescents separately. A lot of the work is done with them on their own. Even if you're mm -hmm. working as a family, you'll spend mm -hmm. a lot of time with an adolescent on their own. Mm -hmm. But before I answer your question, Jen, it might be good just to talk about what we mean by an adolescent. Oh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> I think we, we were talking before about how there are different definitions in different places. <laughs> Certainly. In Australia, adolescence is now 12 to 24 years of age. Oh, wow. And that yeah, so, so middle age is, you know, right up to 60 now. <laughs> no. um, <laughs> um, adul so adolescence is 12 to 24 years of age and, age, and that's been a shift that's possibly happened in about the last 10 years. And a, that shift has been driven by developmental research showing um, the brain continuing to mature up until the early 20s. So in Australia, we have a shift where most of our youth services or services for young people are 12 to 24 years of age. Wow. So I'm sure it's different all across the world, mm -hmm. um, but it's driven by a recognition that you're still developing. In fact, we know we're still developing all the way through our lives, but yeah. that's, what, that's, where, that's where it's come from. But gotcha. that massive sort of brain development, like rapid brain development yeah. still continues until early to mid-20s. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. I think about yep. 23 is what mm -hmm. the research shows. So. Okay, gotcha. So, so adolescence is a big period and I'm sure as you recognize there's a big yeah. difference between a 12 year old and a 21 year old. Yes, very much so. Okay. So um, when I talk about adolescence today, we tend to focus around that middle area, the 16, 17 area. Okay. Sort of the high school age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that kind of the area we all know and remember well. Mm -hmm. Is that because, is that, would it be safe to then assume that kind of the younger teens, let's say 13, 14, maybe aren't quite ready yet to really benefit from ACT? Is that safe to say or not safe to say? Oh, no, no. We, oh, we work with all ages and we certainly work with 12-year-olds. Okay. Um, just to generalise the work, if I talk about activities or things we might do, I just kind of generalise them around that midpoint. And therapists are pretty good at scaling up or scaling down depending on, on what they need to, okay, gotcha. to do to fit, to fit that person. There's a big developmental consideration. Mm -hmm. but, that needs to go into any of our work. And most adolescent people are pretty good at knowing how to do that. Okay, so you're kind of giving us the mean. Yes, that's okay. right. That's right. right. And there is, no, <laughs> there is no real mean, of course. But, you know, a 12 -year, you can get a 12-year-old that acts like a 16-year-old. Mm. So, True. <laughs> so, you know, Absolutely. we have to adjust that. Um, so your question was really um, what's different or how do we think about it differently? Was that the question that you were initially asking, Jen? Yeah, yeah. Well, what is sort of the ACT take on, on working with adolescents and, um, you know, just in general? How, how, can, how, can a how can we apply sort of ACT principles for, for working with adolescents? Okay. I think the context is really important to begin to, to think about the context in which adolescents are growing up. Um, and... In some ways, the, the way I usually go about training it is to have um, professionals think about their own adolescence. Um, to give you an idea, one of the activities I often do in my workshops is to ask people to um, do a drawing or an, a piece of artwork. It's not really artwork, that's a loose term. But I ask people to do a drawing, an, an abstract kind of scribble, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and I ask them to think about one particular difficult experience that they remember from their own adolescence, um, such as failing a test or, you know, not being invited to a party or, you know, not, not a major event, but something that they recall from their own adolescence. And we do a guided imagery 
and talk around that, uh, that experience. And then I ask them to draw what that experience was like for them. And the feedback is always, um, the two professionals always give me this amazing feedback from these kind of exercises. When I start to explain the exercise, I see a look of dread in their eyes at the prospect of having to call oh. <laughs> their own mm. animals. <laughs> mm-hmm which is really valuable in itself just to see the look of dread that we all have at the prospect of having to think about a not majorly difficult experience but a difficult experience for adolescents like not being invited to a party. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we start with a look of dread and then after we (laughs) do the exercise (laughs) and unpack it, the two bits of feedback that I often get that really uh, are worth thinking about is People will talk about how intense the emotion of the experience was and they're often surprised. They often say, I had no idea that I still could recall how intense that felt. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had one workshop participant who was in his 60s and he said to me, it's 50 years ago, but I can, when you did that exercise, I can still remember how powerful it was in my body. I can still feel that. Wow. Um, so there's this intensity of emotion that is um, present in teenagers and anyone mm-hmm. with a teenager will know how intense the emotion is <laughs> when you get uh, things wrong. I, re- I remember what it was like. <laughs> yeah, I'm, st- I'm still remembering. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got teenagers, John, so you also I'm living it. it. <laughs> That's right. You get it from that other end. So this is this intensity of emotion and the research um, on adolescent development shows us that, in fact, that is um, there are physiological um, changes going on that does make the emotion more intense. Um, there are changes, for, for example, when they ask an adolescent using a functional MRI study, if they ask an adolescent to recognise a facial expression adolescents will tend to use the emotional centre of their brain more, the amygdala, whereas an adult will use the prefrontal cortex to recognise a face. Mm. So um, there's a developmental thing happening, but what we see is that adolescents are processing information much more intensely with their emotional brain, if you like. Uh, Interesting. Um, Yeah, and we know that that part of the brain undergoes quite a lot of development in the adolescent years. Um, functional MRI studies across the span of adolescent development shows us that there is a lot of change that happens. Wow. Yep. So that, I think that, that you know, that we, we've always known that you can look sideways at an adolescent and you've suddenly done the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're hitting close to home here. <laughs> so we know that there's a lot of developmental reasons why that happens as well. And I think that intensity in the emotion that we see is part of what we need to really understand and that we can, uh, that, that they are processing emotion very strongly. To give you a clinical example, I was working with someone um, just recently, a 16-year-old who had a one-month-long relationship, a girl who had a one-month-long relationship with a boy and is totally devastated that after one month it's over. And it's ended. Mm-hmm. And we have to get in contact with how intense that feels for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I imagine a- invalidating that experience would probably not be a very good <laughs> approach. Like, it's no, only been one month. You have the yeah. rest of your life, right? That's not so helpful, I would imagine. <laughs> so, helpful. so we really work hard to try to keep on um, keep an understanding in, the, in ACT therapists about how intense that feels. And that's, of course, not unique to ACT. But... We talk about that a lot in training adolescent and mm-hmm. a- adolescents and ACT. 
So does that mean other- saying accept those emotions is, is a bit of a trickier move then? Yes. Well, I don't think it's trickier than adults. We all find acceptance of our difficult emotions really hard. Um, but understanding what it's about and understanding that that intensity is real, I think is really valuable from, from an act therapist's perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other part of it from that, that drawing exercise, if I go back to the drawing exercise I was talking about, the other thing that, uh, that uh, trainees in workshops will often say to me is they didn't realise how little power they had over the difficult situation. Mm. And what what they tend to reflect on and what we see in adolescence is they have very little power over how they might be able to influence a situation. Um, Unlike adults, they can't leave school. Well, they can, but, you know, that means dropping out of school altogether. Mm -hmm. But they often can't leave school or can't leave their family or they have no money to Mm -hmm. make major changes. So they tend to feel a bit stuck as well. Mm -hmm. If you think about work with adults, most of them have, not all, but Majority have some flexibility in their lives. They can leave a partner if it's difficult or, you know, they can make some decisions where often an adolescent feels quite stuck. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And ha- yep. having no, no power, yeah. really no power at all. Mm-hmm. And lots of adults around you telling you what you should do. Mm-hmm. So there's these two issues that I often focus on their lack of um, power and the intensity of the emotion. And I think um, they're useful to bring into the ACT um, training. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So um, I'm sure you'll probably go into this, uh, but you, you started asking for me to repeat my question and I kind of changed it on you, but um, I was starting to ask about how ACT is different. So how does ACT contribute something new to, to these particular difficulties? Okay. I think what ACT contributes I'm I'm not I might have changed it on you, Jen. Huh? <laughs> I think what ACT contributes that's new, um, what what I see the most in the room when I work with clients is really an understanding of the normality of suffering mm. and being able to share that with young people. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it when I do diffusion exercises with young people or when we talk about um um, how other people suffer as well or how other people are distressed by emotions. And I can see in their faces this look of wonder, like, really? Do you mean <laughs> this is... And I'm sure, you know, people see that with adults too. But they, are, they seem enormously surprised <laughs> that, <laughs> that it's, it's okay to have feelings and it's okay to have difficult thoughts. Mm. And the biggest one, of course, is the suicide discussion and thoughts of suicide mm. um, it's it, the rates in adolescence are, show one in two 50 percent of adolescents um, there's a big study from drum and colleagues in the u.s of twenty six thousand undergraduate students showing that 50 percent of them had had suicidal thoughts at mm-hmm. some stage mm-hmm. that's of course not suicide with a plan but suicidal thoughts mm-hmm. right. and when you talk with young people, so, so it's very high, the prevalence is very high with young people and we t- when I talk with young people about what suffering they're doing and what they've done to try and um, to, to help themselves, of course often they'll go straight to their parents who will totally freak out <laughs> and send them off to a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> right, they'll tell, right. Their, they'll tell their friends and of course, you know, what do you think their friends say to them? Oh, there's nothing wrong with you or you're okay or you've got a nice family or you're really pretty or, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. okay. you shouldn't think like that. Uh-huh. So the message is loud and clear. You should not think like that and there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I think what ACT brings is that understanding of how we think and how we process lang language and how our emotions work and how we can understand that and learn mm -hmm. to be human instead of trying to get rid of it or think that there's something terribly wrong with us. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not a whole lot different to ad adults really, is it? No, no, but I the intensity, the, the, that, that intensity of the feelings, I remember feeling a little bit crazy as an adolescent, like, how can I, you know, be, be bawling, you know, listening to a sad song for no reason, you know, like, why is, how is this normal, you know, the sense yeah. of intensity and, and recognizing everyone has these, everyone suffers around just living, mm. must yeah. be a huge shift for folks. It is. It yeah. is. It's an incredible shift. And the other part of it that I find really interesting is uh, we use a, an inside-outside metaphor a lot. Um, and Joseph Chiroki and Anne and I have used this a lot in the book. And I think it originally came from uh, Jackie Pistorello and Victoria Follett's book on Finding Life with Trauma, an mm -hmm. ACT book. Yep. Yeah. But we use this inside-outside metaphor a lot with young people um, of helping – because I think teenagers tend to feel like they're transparent – like everybody can see that they're a loser. Mm. You know, like it's really obvious that they are a loser. Mm -hmm. um, so we use an inside-outside metaphor a lot to help them um, stand in those two places, the two perspectives of what they look like on the outside and what they feel like on the inside. And also everybody in their peer group, how they look on the outside and how they might be feeling on the inside. And we try to draw this... Um, draw this out for them to experience what it's like uh, to stand in these two different places. I think perspective taking is really important with young people mm -hmm. um, uh, because they feel so transparent, because they feel that everybody could see what's going on. Everybody so you, could see you're doing this exercise in group or in individual? Both. Both. We do it in group and in individual work. Group work, of course, you get that lovely dynamic of, of the, the group seeing, aha, everyone has this. Hmm. But so do it in individual work too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so we try to draw it out that way for, to allow them to experience different um, perspectives and to allow them to see themselves as really understanding that suffering is is part of us, part of being human. Mm -hmm. Normalize it. Yeah, I think normalize. There's, a, I think there's a lot to be said for normalizing in adolescence because, as you said, Jen, you tend. So often people tend to think that there's something really weird. Why am I crying over a sad song? There must be something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, I hope you don't mind me throwing in another question, but um, this sort of begs the question to me, you know, it sounds like you're you're speaking more of the normal adolescent experience. Like most of us probably have had these kinds of experiences or maybe there's some adolescents listening going, oh yeah, that's me. Um, but there are... Um, maybe moments or, or times in adolescents' lives where things kind of kick up into crisis mode um, or they might even end up being diagnosed with a particular psychological problem. So, so, you know, is there a difference between working with adolescents who are sort of in the normal sort of, you know, range of just being an adolescent struggling with a family versus, you know, sort of crisis mode and, and can ACT address both of those places? I think ACT can address both of those places and how we would separate the work is to talk about acting somewhere like schools, mm -hmm. which perhaps could be for, for typically developing the normal level of struggle, if you like, um, and the other work is ACT in the clinic. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. In clinical settings, so I think I'm I think I'm kind of talking about both. But if we talk okay. about um, first act in a crisis setting with adolescents in a crisis setting, I certainly do a lot of that work with adolescents in a crisis setting, and. Uh, our current prevalence rates for things like depression are like one in five young people. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty high. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said about uh, – we, we won't go down the whole argument about diagnosis and what's right. going on there, but <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot to be said about um, helping young people understand um, what – helping people understand – young people understand what's going on with their emotions and what's going on with their feelings and thought and how much is normal and how much is a level of distress that they could get some help with. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when we do act in the clinic – it's a wonderful way to help to help the distressed, clinically distressed young people mm-hmm. to um, understand and to get some more flexibility in the way they approach their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, do you have a particular? Leave... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna... we might leave the topic of acting schools together. We'll talk about that all together later on, if that's okay. sure. Sure, that, that sounds like a plan. Sure. Okay. Um, I was just thinking. I wonder if you might walk us through maybe a case example um, of sure. someone you've worked with to kind of give us a, a sense of, of some of the nuances of, of this approach. Okay, sure. Um, I think the easiest way to do that would be to talk um, perhaps not so much as one case example, but to talk around the hexaflex sure. that people are familiar with and to talk about different case examples around the hexaflex might be a little bit easier. Beautiful. Sure. Hopefully our listeners are are uh, familiar with the hexaflex by now. Or maybe by the time this comes out, it'll be a new model altogether. No, just kidding. <laughs> We're hoping that this thing evolves and changes, so who knows? <laughs> for, for, our yeah, listeners, sure. for our listeners, if someone's joining us late, the hexaflex is the six-point sort of diagram that we use to kind of describe ACT and the six core processes. So diffusion, um, uh, acceptance, diffusion, selfless context, um, contact with the present moment, values, and committed action. Is that right? Did I get them all? Yeah. All, right. all working in concert to produce flexibility, psychological flexibility. Right. Okay. So let's perhaps talk first about um, – we'll, we'll talk about those and we'll come. hopefully I'll come back to psychological flexibility and adolescence, which is another topic all on its own, I think. Um, but if I talk with you about some case, some client work, it might give you an, some insights. Um, in terms of acceptance work, um, I'd like to talk with you about a, a young girl I was working with who was around 16 years of age and she was seeing me for depression. She had some chronic illness but she also had some depression. Mm-hmm. And she was one of those young people, and we all find this sometimes, but she was one of those young people who cried all the time and she really couldn't speak because every time she tried to talk about herself, she just cried. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, one or two sessions where she cried. Wow. And yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> it's pretty hard. But she. You mean like the whole session? Yeah. Yeah. Well, every time I asked her a question, so if I wasn't asking her a question, she wasn't crying. But oh I wasn't kind of finding out much out either. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. So she cried. She cried a lot. Um, and then I asked her to do a drawing exercise, a bit like the one I was talking about earlier. And I asked her to 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 draw on a piece of paper, I gave her some oil pastels and asked her to draw on a piece of paper what it feels like to be her right now. 
And I asked her to draw it in an abstract way. I said, I don't really want to see a piece of art. I'd just like you to try and represent on that piece of paper a feeling. Try and show me what it feels like and what's going on inside you. And she sat and she drew very deliberately and very quietly and drew, it's hard to describe over the audio only, but she drew this picture that had um, was like a, like a, a, a leaf kind of blowing in the middle of a storm, I guess, but it was a, an abstract. Mm-hmm. And she was able to talk about that drawing, whereas she wasn't able to answer any questions that I was asking her. And she described it as herself as being like in a massive storm and like she felt she was just being blown away and she was not able to stay grounded. And this was an acceptance exercise that we were doing as she unpacked and described the picture. She could talk about the picture, but she couldn't talk about herself. Mm. But staying with the picture and allowing her to describe what it felt like to be her and what it felt like inside her allowed her to begin to find a way in which she could experience her emotions and talk about her emotions without crying. Interestingly, Mm. she stopped crying as we talked about that. Mm. So that's kind of one way to do acceptance. Mm. There's lots of ways to do acceptance, but, you know, that's one way in which you can do acceptance with a a young person to try to really get an idea of what's going on on the inside. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I flipped that with her and then I asked her to, to, to do a second drawing. This kind of took up two sessions, but I asked her to do a second drawing and to draw what she wanted. I didn't really give her very much other directions other than to draw what she wanted. If that wasn't happening, what would her life be about? And she drew this little picture very deliberately again and she drew this little abstract picture of kind of like um, uh, like a – a puzzle ball, you know, like a p- pieces of a puzzle that had been put together to make the shape of a ball and, and all in these multi-different colours. And when I asked her to describe what that was, she said, that's me with my family and my friends. Mm. And she had this beautiful interconnected kind of colour, bright, colourful piece that stood in so much contrast to her earlier image of being blown away like in the middle of a storm mm-hmm. to this really nice connected piece. Um and she described it as being interconnected and being together. Mm. And that was what she most wanted is for the relationships in her life, which were conflictual, for the relationships in her life to be um, accepting and uh, for her her as well to find a way in which she could have warm and caring relationships with people. And we used that second picture as the basis for the rest of our therapy. That was what we were working for. That was our value statement. We were working for that. She wanted yes. to become whole or complete within her relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice way to summarize it. And so that picture was our guiding um, work for therapy. We worked from there. Nice, nice. How are you, how are you tying this to acceptance? I, I'm missing it, but I, I apologize. Tell me how. Well, how, when we first, with the first picture, how we were tying that to acceptance is for her being willing to, to experience the emotion in the room. I see. And we talked. We talked. Oh, course, okay, okay. But how how it, those emotions are part of her, and they're okay to have. Oh, so she was resisting it. She was crying. She was sort Ooh. of unwilling to even talk about it or go there. Let alone I can't accept talk about it. it. I can't go there. Yeah. And and you're so, saying drawing the picture helped her become more willing and able to address it by abstracting it a little bit. Absolutely. Well, it's a form of exposure to be able to bring them present in the room. When she couldn't Mm -hmm. speak, it's a way of bringing them into the room. Mm -hmm. Um, Got it. And then we we unpacked about um, emotions and 
understanding what those emotions were and experiences we're talking to her about. Okay, got it. Okay, so that's kind of an acceptance and a bit of values work in there too about Mm -hmm. how we might approach that kind of work. Mm -hmm. Um, Should I continue around the head? Yeah, yeah, I'm loving it. (laughs) This is great. Okay, Okay. all right. Um, I'd like to talk with you about diffusion because I do a lot of diffusion work and I really have so much fun with diffusion work. It's one of the coolest parts of working with adolescents and diffusion because it has that kind of quirky, weird what on earth are you doing (laughs) (laughs) place in it? Um, And it's surprising and unexpected. Um, Adolescents often think um, that a psychologist is um, boring. (laughs) (laughs) And so one of the things I love about ACT is the experiential part allows you to not be boring and to take them by surprise and for Mm -hmm. them to have an aha experience in an ACT exercise helps them learn more than talking could ever do. Mm. Mm. Um, My favourite example that I recall in my mind all the time was a young person who um, I was obviously talking too much and she looked at me and she said, I can see your mouth moving, but all I can hear is blah, blah. Fabulous. One of the nice things about teenagers, they'll always just tell you, right? (laughs) Yeah, they'll just tell you right out. (laughs) So back to diffusion. I I always set up diffusion um, after a couple of years of trying and having some, you know, odd disasters. I always set up diffusion in an experimental way. I always ask young people, are they willing to do some weird little experiments with me? And just like an experiment in the science lab, I have no idea what will, what it will be like for them. But if they're willing to have a go, then I can we can do it as an experiment and then they can tell me what happens. And it doesn't matter what happens because it's like an experiment. My job is just to find out what happens for them. And I find that really lowers the resistance and allows them to go, okay, it doesn't really matter what happens. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas uh, if you do a diffusion exercise if I do a diffusion exercise or in the past when I've tried in other ways, there's an expectation that something should happen um, and that I have all this knowledge and I'm showing them how to do some weird thing and if they don't get it right, then they've got it wrong and there's something even mm. more wrong with them than, mm. you know, what, what we initially thought. Not good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I always set it up as an experiment and, and we we do pretty much the standard diffusion exercises. My favourite one is the milk, milk, milk exercise. I do that all the time. Right. That works, huh? It works beautifully as long as you set it up as an experiment and you, as long as you tell them that this will be weird. <laughs> and it does require a little bit of weird feelings on the part of the therapist too. You know, you do have to mm-hmm. feel silly and strange, but I find totally. that with engagement. Um, and uh, I, we, I use um, – there's a few little apps around that you can use, you know, iPhone applications that you can use or oh, cool. Android applications that you can use. So this and will probably kick you into the non-lame category, right? As soon as you pull <laughs> out your iPhone. <laughs> yeah, my iPhone and my iPad are very good clinical tools. I uh-huh. use them all the time. Um, and I, I discovered um, somebody on the on the ACT list serve, I think it was John Forsyth actually, um, talked on the ACT list serve about a little application called Talking Tom. Talking Tom is a little tomcat, and when you talk to him, he talks back to you in an animated voice. Oh, I've heard him in a totally and kooky animated voice. so cool. Um, and when I first discovered him, I thought, oh, this is so cool. I cannot wait to use this in the clinic. 
And um, I tried it on myself and I, and I had used it and um, I said to it, I'm fat, I'm fat. And it repeated that back to me in an animated kind of voice. <laughs> <laughs> and, then I picked up, and then I picked up my 17-year-old from school and I showed it to him. I said, look at this. This is great. I'm going to use it in the clinic. And I played it back, my animation of me saying, I'm fat, I'm fat over and over. And he just looked at me horrified and he said, oh, mum, you cannot use that in the clinic. You can't use that with people. That is just cruel. Mm. You're going to ask them to say mean things about themselves. Mm -hmm. Ah. Animated voice. And I I said to him, no, 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 it's not cruel. It's it's really really not. (laughs) It's addressing an important act process. (laughs) (laughs) This is empirically supported. (laughs) He said, no, 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 mum, you can't do it. And I said, okay are you willing to do a little experiment with me? And he went, oh, well, right, if I have to. And then we were in the car and he was learning to drive and we drove down the highway while he said milk, 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 milk over and over for a minute. And then at the end of it, he looked at me and he went, okay, you can use it now, I understand. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. Once I had son's permission, no, (laughs) on that Exercise. I really did understand the importance of the setup of diffusion exercises with young people. Um, it, it's not just a story about my son. It's actually it helped me realise that setting it up as an experiment and setting it up in a way that um, that they are allowed to experience it without any expectations does allow diffusion to work much better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that, I did start to use those kind of things in the clinic. And I'll just tell you a quick clinical example. I was working with a young girl who had OCD and her um, difficult thoughts were related to even numbers. Whenever an even number came up, like a two or a four, um, she had thoughts that she would either die or get a serious illness. Mm. Yeah. Um, and even numbers come up a lot in life. Right. Um, so she, <laughs> yeah. she was struggling with math, and she was struggling with um, you know using she wouldn't couldn't use two colours on a drawing, or she would always have to add in a little third thing somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. So we were doing a little exposure exercise where I asked her to put two little smiley stickers, if she was willing, of course, to put two little smiley stickers on the back of her hand. And if she was willing to do that, I would let her play with my new Talking Tom app. Nice. Um, <laughs> and she, I asked her, put, would, would she be willing to have two stickers on her hand for two minutes? So we have a double whammy, two lots oh, of two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and at the end of the exercise, she did it. She was willing. And at the end of the exercise, she um, picked up the, the Talking Tom application and she looked at me sheepishly and said, can I ask it, am I going to die? And she asked this little cat, am I going to die? And said it three times. And it repeated it back to her in an animated voice. Mm. And there was this hesitation in the room. I had mum and a student, a graduate student in the room with me. So there's four of us in the room and there was this hesitation. She looked at me and then she just laughed and laughed and laughed. And she just just cried with laughter as this cat kept repeating back her much serious thought, am I going to die? Wow. How powerful. It's wonderful. It was like I I wanted to jump up and do my little happy dance. Like, yeah, (laughs) this was something that was really important to her. Wow. And she made some really important gains from that little time when she saw that these thoughts were thoughts and she could could relate to them differently. Uh Uh-huh. Gotcha. So, 
Yep. And just to toss out there something we've 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 probably heard a few times in our podcasts is this idea of humor, particularly with diffusion. But this idea sure. of humor, you know, we take ourselves and our thoughts so seriously because they they feel really important and serious. Yes. And then yeah. when we can get that distance from them and, and see them as humorous, it, mm. it can really have a powerful, powerful impact. Absolutely. I think humor is really important. And I think with adolescents, that's really useful as well, because mm-hmm. they can learn, they can learn from them. Yeah. From it. Self-generated, of course, you know, we, we, when the adolescent themselves can find it funny, not when we laugh at them. <laughs> oh, right. Of course. Right. But at least they will tell you when they feel laughed at. Most yeah, of yeah, yeah, exactly. Good, yeah, you have pretty yeah. good engagement with them. They'll tell you when they think you've got it wrong, which yeah. is always kind of nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think diffusion, lots of all of the standard ACT diffusion exercises work really well, providing they're set up in a way that allows the adolescent to know that it doesn't really matter what go, what happens, um, that it's an experiment. It doesn't really matter whether there's no right or wrong. It's just try something and let's see what happens for you. And then they get an experience. Gotcha. As my good friend Lisa Coyne says, which I think is a great way to think about this work, with um, adolescents as well as with children, it's really stop talking and do it. <laughs> and then um, you find that it works really well. Oh, yeah. I think that's a great just take home little kernel there for act in general. Stop yeah. talking and do it. Yeah. I think that's a pitfall that a lot of people come into act uh early on tend to do is talk a lot. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, I sure we do. Love to talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I find myself in that place. Love hearing myself talk, man. It's just, you know. Yeah. <sighs> yep, you need a teenage client to tell you to stop talking. <laughs> shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to say something like, which part of shut up don't you understand? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh man, I should have been working with adolescents all along. I think it would have shaped my behavior a lot. No, just kidding. <laughs> well, they're fun. They're loads and loads of fun. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So, so what process is next? Talking. Well, let's talk about um, let's talk about the hard area. Self as context. That's the, that's um, I think the hardest area for most people when they learn ACT. It was certainly an area that I ignored for a long time because I thought it was way too hard to try to explain to teenagers. Yeah. Talk about it. There we go back to right, talking. To right, about what talking, yep. Talking about what it is. Um, and I think I still have a lot to learn about self as context with teenagers and how to help them understand that. Um, but I also think that in terms of their development, this is a really critical area for, for young people. Um, if you think back about your own adolescence, I often ask uh, for a show of hands um, amongst my workshop participants if they remember some labels that were attached to them around their teenage years and everybody can put up their hand and remember that there was something that stuck around that time. Um, and so I think developmentally, this is a time when we come to define ourselves. Mm-hmm. There's some new research, again, back to the brain imaging research, but there's a new study in child development um, from Pfeiffer and colleagues looking at how adolescents process um, their understanding of themselves. And um, when they look at that research and compare them to adults, the way an adolescent um, thinks about themselves in on self-reflection looks very similar to the way an adult thinks about how other people think of me. 
that's clear because it's really a, a complex kind of thing to put into one little phrase. But I think it's really important to, to think about that. So if I'm a teenager and you ask me, how do you think of yourself? Or how do I think of myself? Um, how I will answer that question in terms of a functional brain um, scan or functional MRI will look the same as when an adult is answering the question, what do other people think of me? Wow. So I think that blows my mind. It kind of makes sense really if you think yeah. about it. Remember when you're 15? Oh, and what yeah. How everyone else thought of you, what everyone else thought of you was how you defined yourself. Mm-hmm. So people's, as a teen, people, your perception of how people view you is your perception of yourself. Is that right? Your, your perception of yourself is how people view you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's hard to have an independent sense of self, as yes, so just my, even my, developmentally in the brain. Wow. So my self-knowledge and how I would explain myself uh, looks the same as how other people would, explain, would define me. That explains so much of my adolescence, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you the study, Jen, and you can read it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it, it, it just it, it puts into context so much of that struggle of who am I? Who do I want to be? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm getting yeah. who, am I, who, I want, who am I and who, who do I want to be? Yeah, yeah. yeah all those questions. All those questions, yeah. both self as context and values. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I think self as context and values are the two areas that I feel are really important to understand how to approach with adolescence and the two areas that also stand out because of that intensity and because of we're discovering who am I and do I belong? And do I fit in? Mm-hmm. And what kind of person will I be? Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of how we do self as context in the clinic, um, I think it, it travels easily a lot from the diffusion exercises because in the diffusion exercises, of course, they begin to see that these words and thoughts are really um, uh, a history and part of our learning and that we apply them to ourselves, but they, they, are, they come from a place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and once you have begun that work, you can start to use the standard act um, uh, classics like the sky and the weather to help them understand the difference between um, thoughts and feelings that are difficult and, them, and, and themselves as this um, person who understands those. I love that, the sky and the weather. Yeah, you don't, that metaphor is really quite old. I think it's 2,000 years old. Hmm. Um, yeah, it sounds, Russ sounds Harris uses right? it a yeah. lot. Yeah, Russ uses it a lot, which is, and it works quite well with adolescents. And it's about helping them to see that their difficult thoughts and difficult feelings and difficult experiences that come and go are like weather patterns and the, mm-hmm. the, the, mm-hmm. like the sky that, that continues never ending. Um, so we can use it in those kind of ways to begin to help them understand. But I've started to use some other things that, like some YouTube videos that we perhaps could put a link in if people want to. Yeah, for, totally. Um, totally. Yeah, yeah so send, them, use, send them to us. We'll pop them up. Yeah. yeah, so I have some little treasures I've discovered on YouTube, and there's one in particular that I'm using for self as context at the moment, which I can't describe, unfortunately, so people will just have to go to the link. Um, but it's a lovely little um, um, shot of a teenager defining themselves by the words that are being thrown at her in the context of bullying. And I'm sorry, I can't explain it more. People will have to go to the link to <laughs> kind of use it. <laughs> <Got> it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think self as context is really important mm-hmm. and leads from diffusion into helping them see how um, they are starting to use those words. Mm-hmm. And if we can remember from our own teenage years how some of those words stuck around, I think that makes it really important. 
Yeah, totally. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And speaking about that, the other thing I often ask my workshop participants is if they recall somebody in their teenage years telling them something that was really um, positive and really powerful for them. And do they remember that? And often people will put up their hand and say, yeah, I remember my, you know, year seven teacher telling me that I was really good at this or I remember. And there'd be one little tiny comment, you know, one little mm-hmm. passing comment that we hang, can hang on to for 20 or 30 years. Right. Mm. And I also keep that in mind when I'm working with adolescents and I feel like I'm getting nowhere is you, we really don't know if that one, if you're going to be the person who will make that one little statement that might stick around for a very long time. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think that's really useful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've been doing my own little um, um, survey of ACT therapists. I ask them if they can remember a teacher saying something or a teacher or an adult in their life when they're a teenager saying something that was really powerful that helped them feel more positive or feel more that they had um, some strengths they didn't recognise. And mm-hmm. interesting, with a little bit of thinking, most people can think of something. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it's back to self as context and how yeah. we come to understand right. ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Of course, lots of people can think of a negative thing that someone said to them as well. For sure. Oh, heck yeah. Those are easy. <laughs> <laughs> Those are easy. I oh, remember you'll... the names people called me and that was not, yeah. <laughs> Those stick yeah. Out. <laughs> but you remember them and that's important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, shall we move on to mindfulness? Yeah, what's it like doing mindfulness for teens? <laughs> um, John, John, getting excited about this. You're going to practice this with your kids. <laughs> yeah, I'm tr- trying to imagine them going, "Dad, come on, this is lame." <laughs> That's the operative word, lame. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's certainly no sitting on cushions and chanting "Om." No. When you're doing it with teenagers, um, I think. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, I think uh, the way I approach mindfulness with teenagers is to think about it a little bit differently. Um, I think if you look at a child, um, they're naturally present. A healthy, happy child who. They're, they're, you know, a child who's playing with their Barbie dolls at age five, they're just totally in Barbie land and nothing else matters. Um, and, and an adult is always tends to, as adults, we tend to be pulled into the future and our planning and problem solving minds are really ramped up. And I think teenagers are somewhere in between these two extremes. Uh, you can watch a 15 year old who is um, with their friends and happy and nothing else matters except that moment where they're right there. And at other times they're pulled into the future with worries about will they pass high school and will they be a success in life and will they find someone to love them. And, mm-hmm. and so I think in the teenage years you get this mix of sometimes being quite present moment and childlike in their ability to stay with um, in the present with an activity. I'm talking about typically developing well um, teenagers. Mm-hmm. And then at other times there's a pull towards the future that I, almost to me, I don't have any research on this, but to me it kind of feels like we're training them to always anticipate and think about the future and think about what they want to do with their life and what they want to be about. And I mean like I think, the, the sort of the pulls from the culture are sort of like part of growing up is figuring out what to do in the future. Yeah, that, and yeah. It, yeah, and I think there's an, an, uh, quite a, a large burden and a lot of pressure to to, yeah. to be pulled forward all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think that 
at, to me, I think of this adolescent space as like a training ground where you can forget about being a little kid and, and playing is the only thing that mattered to being an adult where you have lots of serious things that you have to think about and lots of serious things that you need to achieve. Mm. So I, I, I kind of think it would be would be great if we could understand it more in research. But yeah. I, from, a, from a clinician's perspective, I, I try to um, think about how to help adolescents retain some of that ability to be present like a child can. Um, and so I don't necessarily do um, a mindfulness of, you know, quiet mindfulness exercises like a quiet breathing exercise I try to um, tailor a mindfulness exercise to suit the young person's interests and what they like to do so we might do anything from mindfulness with ACDC music through to mindfulness with playing basketball that's a that's a stereotypical Australian rock group to choose (laughs) It is a stereo. I use that for a very good reason. <laughs> um, I, I don't use that with young people because it's only for old people who know ACDC. Although it does give a little bit of credibility, but I use ACDC in my adolescent, in my adult, in my sorry, in my act training workshops um, nice. as a way of thinking about mindfulness from a different um, place. It's not mm-hmm. always just being quiet and. Um, when I, so for young people, I'll choose the latest hits, the latest music that's playing or something that they really like. Mm-hmm. But I try and choose something really fast um, and even heavy metal or something that they're interested in. And I ask them to, as we do a mindfulness exercise, to notice what happens in their body when they are listening to the music. And, um, and they'll often be able to notice the arousal that they feel as they listen mm-hmm. to the music. Mm-hmm. And so, well, then we can flip that over and contrast it to doing a, a very brief mindfulness of breathing exercise and they can notice that different that difference too. So I try to do it in a number of different ways and to mm-hmm. draw attention to the idea that what we're, what we're trying to help them do is to be present. No matter what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't have to be about sitting on a cushion and chanting om, which of course mm-hmm. we don't do in act anyway. <laughs> Teenagers can easily misunderstand a mindfulness exercise as I'm teaching you to meditate. Mm-hmm. And I think what I... What, what I try to focus on instead is I'm teach, trying to help you learn to be present mm-hmm. in, in whatever you're wanting to do, present mm-hmm. in life really, mm-hmm. and to draw those contrasts out. Yeah, yeah. But, John, you might have to come to one of my workshops if you want to hear Mindfulness with ACDC. I want to hear You Shook Me All Night Long. That's the song I want to play. Nice, nice. <laughs> Karaoke, the next ACBS conference is on. <laughs> I'm sure DJ can organize that. I'm sure yeah, DJ exactly. could organize the music for us. I'm sure he would volunteer. <laughs> yeah, very cool. So I, I, what I've noticed so far in the, the way you've been talking about this is the ways that you subtly shift things to fit the needs of your individual clients as well as for the developmental needs of adolescents as well, which is, I think, a nice a nice piece of this walking through the hexaflex here. Great. Yeah. And I'm so ready. values and committed action are what we have left. Ah, now values is the hardest part. Ah. <laughs> values is where mm. lots of fusion shows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't want we don't want our teens uh, making decisions based on their own values, do they? Do we? No, <laughs> we, want we want them to adopt ours. Our values, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Except when they've got a parent who's into act, and then they'll allow them to develop their own. 
most of the time. A scary, scary prospect. Yeah. Um, I, as I said earlier, and I think this is pretty universal, I ask, um, I've been running adolescent works, training workshops here in Australia and at the ACBS conferences, and I always ask people, which are, the, which are the areas that are most difficult when working with adolescents? And without a doubt, values will be number one. Mm. People will say values, and the second one is self as context. Mm-hmm. And I think values is really hard because a lots of fusion shows up. But that's the same as with adults. That's no different. Sure. Um, but over some time, I've, I, I have come to, th- to think that the, one of the reasons that adolescent values is so hard is because they're still discovering. And so the, the, the words that we've started to use is discovery, mm. to think that this is a whole process of discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and Joseph and Joseph Chiroki and Anne and I have written this into the, the book, that Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life for Teens. We've used this whole framework of discovery to work up a lot of values exercises. Um, And and what I mean by discovery is if you're an adult, you've pretty much made some decisions. They might not be great decisions, but perhaps you have had a job or had an education or have a partner or you've made lots of decisions usually by the time you get to your adult years. And so you've had lots of chances that you've got a repertoire of choosing. Um, With teenagers, they don't have that same repertoire of choosing decisions that are life-changing in the same way. And at the same time, they have this pressure coming on them from society about what will you do with your life? Will you go to college? Will you, you know, what kind of things will you do? Will you get a job? Will you drop out? Um, And so I think they haven't always had a chance to make choices and to experience choices. Mm -hmm. And so... When ACT therapists say to me, I ask adolescents about values and they just give me a, I don't know, I think that's one of the reasons is that there's not much practice in choosing in an ACT consistent way what you care about. And so when we ask a teenager, you know, what do you care about? You will often get a, I don't know. Right. Because it's Mm -hmm. a new question. Yeah. It's a space. So we think about it in terms of discovery and um, I use lots of ways in which we can create conversations that look nothing at all like I'm talking about values but seem to get us back there. Hmm. Um, So one of the ways um, uh, in the new book we've got this really cool game which I can't describe but (laughs) but it's called Game. Is there going to be a link people can go to to get to it? (laughs) Oh no they'll have to wait sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Have to buy the book. (laughs) Sorry, there'll probably be a link down the track, but not just yet. Sorry. Okay. Um, uh, one, so one of the things that I've started to use for the last year or so and um, is some uh, cards that we call values cards that, ha- that are ways to start conversations with young people. And people can get these. Um, I'm about to put them on ACBS as a free resource. So Nice. Yeah, I've said that out loud, so I have to now make sure I pop it up quickly. You're stuck. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, so one of the things that we try to do is to create a conversation and to give you an idea it's probably easier to talk about a clinical example or a couple of clinical examples Um, I use a range of questions that don't necessarily look like values questions and they're just a way of casually talking about things other than the problem so usually I approach values by asking a young person um, something like, you know, I know lots about your problems. We've talked a lot about all of the things you, that you're struggling with, but I would like to know 
you, not just the problem. So do you think you'd be willing to have some other, to talk about some other things so that I get to know you? And they're usually quite willing to do that. Mm. And I have a range of cards that I often just put out and they have different questions on them or different pictures or different statements or different words. And I usually ask them to say, you know, like, what would you like to talk about today? Which one, where can we start? Um, and and um, it's a way of creating a conversation where I'm listening for values things in there that I can lead the conversation once they start. To give you an example, I was working with a young girl who um, was not in school and she was having some difficulty with her family. She was doing, you know, some um, low-level kind of drugs and, you know, having not, in, not engaged in school and 16 years old and had quite a few, a bit of conflict going on with her family. And we um, started having some casual conversations around these different questions so that I could get to know her. And one of the questions that I had on in front of her was, who is the wisest person you know? And I asked her that question. She said, I don't really, who is the, I said, who is the wisest person you know? And she looked at me from behind her big crop of hair very sheepishly and she said, my mother. And she pushed the card slowly across the desk towards me and said, my mother is the wisest person I know. Mm. But if you tell her, I am never coming back to the <laughs> <laughs> so that'll in those kind of yeah that'll ruin it but in those kind of little conversations you get a sense mm. of you can begin to think okay there's something in here and we can explore more about what that is mm -hmm. um, so other questions that I find are really useful are things like do you prefer blending in or standing out which doesn't necessarily sound like a values question to me it's just a question about socialising. Um, but I've had a young person who – I've had loads of young people who've answered this question. But I remember one person said, I used to prefer blending in. I used to quite like being um, just part of the group and blending in. But, and then she looked at me and she said, but now I'm really nasty and no one likes me. Wow. And she got really angry at me and said, why did you ask me that question? Wow. And you can see in there that there's loads of value stuff that you can begin mm -hmm. to think about and unpack mm -hmm. from that. So this so these little little conversations are way in which I can then get a sense of what really perhaps might be going on in terms of what they care about and we can use that to explore more values discussions and conversations mm -hmm. so with that kind of example why did that bother her so much why and she was very angry with me for even asking the question wow. um, but as we yeah. started to explore why it bothered her so much it was about the relationships and the way she was feeling that she was uh, no longer um, accepted or understood and that she really wasn't behaving in a friendly way to her friends or that she mm -hmm. was being quite nasty mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I one of the ways that we kind of, that I kind of get at values. Very cool. Gotcha. Very cool. Gently, I think, is the way to get at values, and, mm -hmm. and um, without asking the questions directly, just trying to have conversations around things that you care, things that are in your life, really, and mm -hmm. that values work will show up. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great um, a great way for folks to think about values in general. You know, um, you know, yeah. not having to to say what do you care about. It it can be sort of oh I don't know that seems like a heavy question, um, but to yeah. go at it from just listening inside what people are, are talking about around other things, you can absolutely start to hear, hear opportunities. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And in fact, I do this exactly the same way now with adults. I use the same kind of ways, cards, mm -hmm. questions to create conversations. And sometimes mm -hmm. I'll get some really interesting discussion. Like, you know, with an adult, uh, you, I might have 10 questions on the desk in front of me and I'll say, which one do you want to answer? And they'll answer one and then I'll say, will you let me answer one? And, and sometimes they'll say things like, well, you can ask me any question except that one. And they'll point to one particular. <laughs> <laughs> that they don't want me to ask. You know, that's, of course, always the question that I really want to know about. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. So there are some useful ways of getting around that. Mm -hmm. that kind Very of cool. Thing. Very cool. But I think, Jen, uh, something that you mentioned just a little bit back um, is you said something about, I can't recall exactly how you phrased it, but you said something about it doesn't, the act work with adolescents is not different, but it's, shaped differently or you said you made some kind of comment about that? Um, I think I was talking about it being uh, just more sensitive to their developmental context and um, uh, tailored to the individual individual oh, yeah. lessons. Yeah. With. Yes. yes, and there was a point I wanted to make in there um, and I think you're, you're, I, I, you're right, I can no longer really see the difference between adolescent um, act work and adult act work. But when I first started, I was really like, I can't do this with adolescents. And I really tried hard to understand how I could do it with adolescents. Mm -hmm. I often talk, talk in my workshops about how I gave Russ Harris a really hard time because I kept saying, but how do I do this with teenagers? And he was still nice to me, which was really good and very accepting on his part because mm -hmm. I, I very insistent that I wanted to know. Um, but I think over the years that... Um, What's happened is that I don't really understand the separation between doing it, doing it with adults and doing it with adolescents anymore. I think I do it the same with adults as I do with adolescents. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that you say it's kind of shaped differently. Perhaps that's a point to think about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it sounds like it's, it's getting to a level of understanding how we get to the places where we get stuck um, because so much of that is happening as we develop. You know, so much of the places where adults are stuck when they come see us are the things that you get to work with earlier. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> you, you know, you know I, don't, I don't know. It just it has a different kind of quality. Yeah. I can't see the different quality anymore, but that's that's a really interesting point that you make and something good to think on. Well, I think that's why it, it probably feels feels like it's so easy to apply to adults because it's still applicable. We just... Mm come at it from a different perspective when we see adults or, or people who are traditionally trained to work with adults yeah mm. so I'm, I'm i'm a lot of this stuff is helpful for working with adults just listening to i think it'll be really helpful for my work totally great, great. so how about that last how about that last process um uh committed, committed action. action yeah yeah i think committed action doesn't really look a whole lot different um, it's committed action you know, with young people is still driven by their, or still motivated by their values and what they care about. A lot of the committed action tends to be, of course, around relationships, which is the central focus of young people, mm -hmm. what their relationships are, are uh, how their relationships are going and the things that they struggle with. Um, uh, and so I don't really think committed action looks a whole lot different. We use basic behavioural processes to think mm -hmm. about what what action they could take, what goals they would they might approach. Sometimes I use some fun ways, um, you know, standing up on the chairs in our office and being willing to jump off the chairs and mm -hmm. um, 
demonstrating different ways in which you can take a jump and different ways in which you can try things. Um, sometimes we use fun videos like um, the um, uh, piano theory or no, the fun theory, piano stairs um, video, which I can link people to, which is a way of starting to think about how can I... Um, how can I take this action towards my values but have fun with it as well? It nice. doesn't have to be a chore. We don't want it to be a chore because no one will do it. If it's a chore, it's too hard. Right. So I don't think there's a whole lot different except having fun, trying to have fun with it rather so you, than make it a chore. Do you try and avoid using the word homework? I never use the word homework. <laughs> <laughs> I never use the word homework. That's a bad sign for teenagers. <laughs> I'm sure your teenagers have homework, John. Then you have to move into PTSD instead of treating. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, they just won't do it. But if we do homework, as you say, I usually call it a practice activity. But you can have them do practice activities with in other interesting ways. You know, they can use their phone. Most most young people have a, a cell phone and they can use their phone or take photos on their phone or add reminders in their phone or, mm. um, you know, download YouTube clips that we might be using onto their phone. So they can do a whole, whole different ways of um, thinking about it. Worksheets and handouts, I find, don't work particularly well with probably my style of working, but also with young people. Um, many people will talk about watching a young person throw the hand out in the bin as they leave the clinic. <laughs> right. And, and that's um, because most young people have very little privacy. The only privacy they usually have is their cell phone mm. because they're usually smart enough to hide things in there. Um, <laughs> you know, if they want... So, there's, so there's, an, there's an issue around privacy and homework as well. Oh, Yeah. Um, you, d you don't want to take a worksheet from your psychologist home and, put, and for everyone in the world who's going to see. Yeah, yeah sure, sure. And maybe even have your parents read over and ask you why you felt a certain way. Yeah, yeah. and I, ha I, have, had, I have had adolescents say, I can't take that home because mum will question me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and ask me what it all means and I don't want to. So I will ask them to take a photo of it with their phone and they, we will do it that way or to put um, a note in their phone or often just a photo is the easiest with their phone. Yeah. And that way they've got a reminder of what we're doing in their phone. Nice, nice. Their private space. Again, I'm seeing, you know, applications for applications adults. for adults. Yeah. You know, so many, so many of us don't like paper anymore, or forget to fill it out, but we're attached to our phones a lot of the time. So, oh, we sure good are. point all around. Yeah. <laughs> yep, I love the idea of putting in values reminders in mm. in your phone beeping during the day. Yeah, it's a great one. Yeah, yeah. cool. As long as, you make a, as long as you can make a valued choice. To listen to that beep at the phone. Yes, or not. That, that does require that, doesn't it? <laughs> not just hitting snooze on it. <laughs> or slavishly thinking that you must respond because mm -hmm. it's beeped at you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of noticing that you can do in there. That is very true. Very true. Mm -hmm. So, any last words on psychological flexibility in general? Ah, psychological flexibility. I don't really think I understand psychological flexibility and the concept of teenagers. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I, <laughs> um, I'd like to see a lot more research on understanding uh, what flexibility looks like with teenagers. Mm -hmm. um, because there's, because there's um, you know, changing emotions and um, um, changing intensity and... Um, 
changing experiences as they develop relationships and change relationships and try out all the different ways in which they want to be. And, you know, you can watch someone go from trying a goth period to trying and, you know, um, Mm -hmm. a preppy kind of period and Mm -hmm. go through all these different changes that they might go through. Um, I I am not sure how flexibility looks Mm. and, and whether it's a concept that we should expect a teenager to have Hmm. Um, these are just my thoughts I have no research maybe it's just a way of as you say looking at flexibility from a different space Mm -hmm. Um, but I think um, there's that developmental context that we need to consider and that is that it's perfectly appropriate for a 15 year old to sometimes be emotionally intense and fly off the handle and not be flexible Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think we Perhaps I, I would like to understand a bit more about what psychological flexibility kind of looks like for a, a young people. Mm-hmm. And in my head, when I work with young people, I think about it as a concept that we're developing over time, mm-hmm. that, um, that it's not something that I expect them to have, but something that I'm hoping that I will help them learn something about and they will get little pieces of flexibility and that over their period of adolescence up until the time that they become an adult, they might develop some skills that they can use to help them learn to be more flexible. Hmm. But flexibility as a, a noun, I'm not so, I'm not sure how we would see that. Well, it's interesting you say flexibility as a noun because, as good behaviorists, it should be yeah. <laughs> it should be being flexible, or yeah, you know, it's a being word anyway. It should be a verb. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah. So that's a good question that you bring up. Um, you know, what does it really look like? And you know, because when we just you know, my glib way of saying psychological flexibility is you know, uh, doing what you care about even in the face of difficulty. Well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> are adolescents doing that? Is that something that, I mean, I, w- I would imagine that you are working with folks to do that, right? Like doing what you care about or doing things that you might want to do, <laughs> um, even, if, even when difficult things come up. I mean, I don't know, but maybe that's, you know, maybe there's a lot of other things that are going on in there. Yeah, um, I, I, I guess um, uh, Doing what you care about in the doing what you care about in the face of difficulty is the overriding definition. But what about if you've just had a fight with your mum and slammed the door and not talking to her for a week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's certainly certainly not developmentally inappropriate. Well, talk, not talking for a week. I guess it's a long period of time. But you know, not talking for a little while and you're quite cross about it. That's mm-hmm. right. Also, has an appropriate level of developing independence and and um, mm-hmm. testing autonomy and and testing. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of it? What 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 the boundaries are? Hmm. Right. Very very it's interesting not to think about. Flexible. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because yeah, there is that there is that process of breaking away from the family and 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 creating identity and autonomy. That yeah, and that doesn't come so easily and isn't always so pretty. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes you need to push the boundaries to discover what they are and to find out that you don't want to be that kind of a person. Mm. And. And, and you see that a lot with young people is they might push the boundaries right out to extreme behaviour as a way of testing and seeing um, whether that's the kind of person they want to be and they'll have a little play around with that behaviour and then come back to a kind of a middle ground somewhere in between where my mum and dad want me to be and right. where the extreme ends are and maybe they'll find a middle ground where, where they're happy to be. 
And that's so where this, that's where acceptance for parents comes. I was just play. thinking the same thing, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, have I was a like, feeling you might be thinking that. Too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. I mean, this, this speaks. This seems like an opportunity to speak about how you work with parents when this is a developmentally appropriate sort of boundary pushing time. That's got to be really hard. I remember I I wouldn't have wanted to be my mom when I was a teenager. <laughs> so yeah yeah <laughs> what do you do there um well that's when lots of acceptance comes in. Mm-hmm. acceptance comes in but also um it's not uh it's not that different i think with parents to how you would work with any adult um doing act work um and working on relationships um so there's a place for helping them understand um the normality of, if you like, the normality of their own suffering and the normality of what it feels like to have guilt as a parent and what it feels like for what they value and what they really want for their children. Um, and also getting some sense of what their teenagers value and um, what's developmentally kind of appropriate for teenagers and what and what isn't, what is too far to the extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of not particularly act specific or act unique that but discussing what's kind of okay for teenagers to try out Mm -hmm. but the act part comes in with helping um, adults understand how it really pulls onto their values Mm -hmm. um of you know we we don't want our children to make the same mistakes that we did we just don't want them to (laughs) Mm -hmm. and um, that that Values and acceptance work around understanding why you why you as a parent care so much about that and how it how much we don't want our kids to repeat the mistakes that we've made and and how we don't want them to suffer. I mean, right, right. We do not want our children to suffer. I don't want my children to suffer. I want to protect them. I want to wrap them in cotton cotton wool and make mm-hmm. sure they never feel hurt. Mm-hmm. John, you're a parent of teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and there it is. <laughs> no, yeah, you just you don't you don't it's just so painful to watch them suffer and to make mistakes and and mm. you just forget you can know rationally uh that they need to make mistakes and they need to explore and the pain is unavoidable, but actually feeling that pain and knowing what to do with it and how to how to cope with it is a totally different thing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, when you become a parent, you have really your heart is outside your body and it's walking around. That's right. <laughs> so, that's great. That's a great metaphor. It's true. Yeah. So it's wow. Very easy to feel that pain, and uh, so I think act work, of course, speaks so well for parents of understanding of, of developing that understanding that it's a there's a balance between what they care about and, and wanting to protect their children from any kind of pain, as well as understanding their own teenagers need for developing independence and developing their own view and testing ways in which they want to be. Mm-hmm. So I think bringing that into the discussion and being overt about that, just talking and help parents understand the way it pulls at them is really useful. So you've actually conducted get- ACT yes. sessions for parents on just how to be a better parent using ACT. Yeah, although I'm not sure it's, it's – I have. I've run parent groups and I have, of course, worked with parents on their own. But I would probably not say how to be a better parent. Um, I, I would probably say it's more about how to um, understand the, uh, understand 
parent what parenting means to you and ha- the kind of parent that you would like to be uh, rather than better sure 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 yeah but but it's interesting that you use those words because that's what we always want john is we always want to be better parents yeah in fact the best parent we can be right mm-hmm. yeah if you want to head in a values direction like heading west, every morning we have to wake up and think, am I kind of the kind of parent I want to be today? And there's some days when you're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like last Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some more proximal than others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's re- reorienting yourself always to... Uh, the direction that you're heading in and not the destination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, teenagers will tell you when you don't do the thing that they were hoping you would do. <laughs> not always. No, not always. Not always. That's yeah. true. Maybe it comes out in therapy 20 years later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So listen, for, so for all you therapists that are listening to this podcast 20 years down the road, when you have my children, tell them I'm sorry. <laughs> so i just have a quick question it kind of may take us out of our flow a bit but um i think that you know for the parents in the audience um are there good uh, places they can go to learn more about um parent training and 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 the kinds of of ways they can i mean there are definitely act books that we'll get to too uh around you know working with adolescents themselves and also with parents that i'm sure you can recommend but i always find you know when people ask me i just want a good book on parenting do you have one that you really like um that's you know maybe behavioral in nature um uh or or maybe an act one that also has some behavioral principles that are showed to be sort of tried and true okay um well, I'll, I'll give you the act one first. Okay. <laughs> I think Lisa Coyne and Amy Morell's book, The Joy of Parenting, is really is a really good read for parents. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really good read. And it has um, that nice focus. It, 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 it's probably focused more towards parenting of younger children. Um, mm-hmm. But the principles are the same. But I think it has that nice mix of um, basic behavioural parent training um, approach and understanding behavior and you know antecedents and consequences um, but also adding the act um, component on top of it okay. and I think it's a really nice place to a begin nice, to think what it means. A, a nice marriage of both um, traditional behavioral principles and some of the, the act concepts fantastic yeah great yeah. so I think the joy of parenting is a really good read for that um, uh, the other act the other parenting book that I, I I really like it's it's one that I really love and that is John Kabat-Zinn's um Everyday Blessings ah. which is a mindfulness based parenting book but I think it's a really nice read for parents it's it's long it's not short mm. but I think it's a really nice read for um um just helping parents to kind of be present with with um their children nice hmm. So they're the two that I, they're my two favorites. Cool, cool. Great. Sorry if I took you out of the flow of of talking about your clinical approaches, but I just think that that's such a a place where people often will want to just pick up a book and and not know where to go. Um, Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Great. People say that all the time. Um, In our remaining time, I just want to kind of go through a couple things um, that we wanted to kind of address today. 
you've you've been mentioned some data out there on understanding the development, uh, the developmental sort of context in which adolescents are are operating. But um, is there some data out there on using ACT strategies for adolescents? There are there are some studies. Um, mm-hmm. um, there's mine um, uh-huh. <laughs> that we mentioned that John mentioned in the beginning of the podcast yep. Yep. on using ACT with um, adolescents with depression. And there's a lot of work I think that's going to come forward in the next couple of years. I know I have a lot of colleagues across the world who are doing um, trials of ACT with adolescents, um, and and we often see this lag you know, behind mm-hmm. the adult studies, it's quite common to see that kind of lag mm-hmm. as people begin to understand how they can do it. Mm-hmm. I know um, Frederick Livheim, I'm sure I'll mispronounce his name, in Sweden mm-hmm. um, has a number of big ACT studies that he's doing with adolescents in really difficult settings like in juvenile justice. Wow. Um, and he's done, he has a great trial that he did in schools. Um, so I think we will see more and more mm-hmm. work coming across. There is a number of Aussies and, of course, Joe Cherokee in um, Wollongong in Australia has a number of ACT um, studies that he's using and he and I have been talking. Joe's been doing a great program in schools, um, of ACT in schools with adolescents and he and I are talking about how we might be able to collaborate on uh, doing a bigger trial next year. Great. Um, so I think there are there are a lot of people who are um, starting to think about how we can do this work and starting to show some and the data is showing that it it, it works and has good outcomes. Great, great, right? So and we'll see we'll see more mm-hmm. data come to publication shortly. Yeah. Oh, good, good. So for listeners out there, if, if they're act therapists in your area who are interested in working with adolescents or, or you as a parent, um, hopefully you'll know that there's some, there is some research supporting this, this work. Sure. Awesome. And, it, and it might be good to make sure we also talk about schools mm-hmm. because I think it's um, an important yeah. area. We have a few minutes left or not? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, okay. Um, uh, schools is, of course, the, the most important context in which teenagers spend their lives, six hours a day, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are, as I mentioned, Joe Cherokee and um, uh, a number, number of other people starting to think about uh, what it might mean to do ACT in schools. And I think ACT has a really important opportunity in schools because of the uh, cultural cooperative um, context in which we do ACT um, and, and starting to look at how we might um, look at it as a an intervention that can build cooperativeness and collaboration in a school community, mm. working with teachers and the children, I think, and the teenagers is a really valuable opportunity that I think yeah. just ACT is just so perfectly set up in the way the model rolls out to help teachers and to help kids work out how they can build a community in a school. Nice. Um, and, yeah, so I think uh, it's really important to do that work. I'd like to see some big studies come out in that because I think um, – that's when we we spend most of our adolescent years, and if you ask a teenage someone to think about their teenage years, they remember school. Yep, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. where my mind goes to. Yep. Yes. And what an opportunity um, to give kids an opportunity to practice choosing, like you were saying before. They don't get yep. a lot. Teenagers don't get a lot of opportunities to practice choosing. But if you have opportunities to to actually have a say in the way a culture might come together in a school setting. Uh, what an awesome, yeah. awesome just playground yes, for that. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I, I think people like Tony Biglin are also starting to think about um, this. I'm not sure exactly where Tony is at with that, but I know that his um, mm-hmm. background is thinking about community cultures in which yep. young people reside. And and Joe Chiroki has just finished, or in the process of, he's just finished a series of workshops in schools that he calls the Imagine Program, which is ACT in Schools. And he's been using that to work with um selected numbers of students in a school settings and then they go back to their school and work with um, work with the teachers and work with the students on developing their own collaborative cooperative culture in schools wow it's really kind of neat work neat sort of like a collaborative culture or cultural ambassador (laughs) kind of model yeah how cool yeah, so um, I think that's really cool. Really cool to start yes. thinking about how we can how we can develop a culture of in our schools that are more cooperative and collaborative, and um, and where we understand what it means to be a human. Mm-hmm. I think I can use. Um, uh, I think Joseph came developed this metaphor, but he he talks um, or the anecdote. He talks about how um, these days in schools we spend years teaching kids how to do algebra and science and maths and we don't spend a lot of time teaching them how to be a human right yeah Yeah. (laughs) right no wonder people don't know how to say what they want to be about if all they've been taught is how to do two plus understand the biology of a cell Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's right and schools are so pressured for timetabling they've got a very jam-packed curriculum and and i'm sure it's the same in the states as it is here in australia they have a a full curriculum and the test and you know making sure that people meet certain you know um standards of of academic performance yep yeah. Absolutely, and and unless you take a human development class or you have an interest in that area, often there'll be no or very few lessons. I'm generalising, of course. There are some schools who do a great job, but as a generalisation, there's often very few um, uh, ways in which you can learn to be a human and yeah. to have a cooperative, collaborative community and, yep. and to actively be involved in that with some say, not just right. have it thrust upon you, but to be right. involved in developing that. So I think we're act as unique in that way. Yep. Lovely opportunities for the future. Very cool. Very cool. That'd be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and of course, we have new challenges coming through schools with teenagers. Things like cyberbullying is just becoming a, a, a much bigger problem than it ever than we've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. I presume it's the same in the US, but in yes. Australia is a gr- yeah very- facebook with just every moment of every person's life being available and also people posting pictures and you know mm-hmm. having hundreds and hundreds of eyes on your daily life whether you want to or not yeah, yeah. sending yourself sending you a message on your cell phone at 3 a.m to uh, bully <laughs> yeah yeah um, I, I- Personally, I think Facebook and um, um, technology is fantastic for young people as a way to connect. Mm-hmm. But there's also a role in there for helping them to be able to use that. And we're seeing lots of bullying. Yeah, yeah. Yep, definitely more and more of that as, as the technology gets better and we move away from mm. paper. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. As you say, your life is out there for hundreds of people to see. Yep. For better or for worse. Privacy is dead. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you yes, want to get rid of technology. <laughs> right, right. All right. Yeah, so, so, so are there lovely areas of opportunity. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Find the opportunity in it and see if you can mm. follow that piece. Yeah. Mm. Are there things you want to cover before we wrap up? I think we have covered most things. Cool. I'm sure, you know, if given the opportunity, we could talk a lot more about a lot of these topics, but anything you feel like we need to touch on before we move on? No, I think um, we've covered most things. Um, I guess uh, it it might be worth talking about the um, ACT community um, and adolescent child work. Um, Mm -hmm. Some people might not be aware that there is um, a special interest group for children and adolescent work that they can find on the ACBS website. Mm -hmm. And we're uh, Lisa Coyne and um, some other people are really interested in trying to have adolescent and child workers um, supporting each other and collaborating on ideas and sharing ideas. And we're really focusing on how we might be able to shift the research along so that we don't have this lag behind adult work mm-hmm. that we always have. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess if people wanted to go to the website and look up the special interest group for ACT and adolescent work and perhaps mm-hmm. they might um, be willing to find something in there and might be willing to collaborate and talk to us as a group. Mm-hmm. I think it's listed on the website as children, comma, adolescents, comma, and families, special interest group. <laughs> um, so if people, it's CAF for short, I think you guys are calling it, right? <laughs> the yeah. CAF special yeah. interest group. But yeah, just so folks, you know, you're looking under children will be the first word, but adolescents are in there. Great. Yes. Great. How do they navigate to that from the website, Jen? It's actually on the homepage right now, on what? the bottom of the homepage. The SIGs and the special in, uh, special interest groups oh, and yeah, chapters right are listed there. on the homepage. Bottom left. Um, we may end up collapsing them as we get more and more into broader categories that you might have to click a couple more times. But right now, it's right on the homepage. All right. Yep. Well, very well, nice. Louise, this has been awesome. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> yeah, Louise. Great thanks, ideas John. for... Um, for, for, for exercises that I think are, are wonderful to use with adults as well as adolescents. Uh, you've given people resources. They can connect up with others who are doing work with children's, children, adolescents, and families. I almost said children's again. Right. Uh, <laughs> some of my friends back in Reno will laugh at me if they hear that again. Um, uh, and you've listed a couple books that parents can seek out. Joy of Parenting by Lisa Coyne and Amy Morell. Is Lisa the first author? Yes, she is. Yeah, so it's Coyne. So. C O Y N E N is a Nancy E. So it's not coin like the like the monetary C-O-Y-N-E. unit. It is C O Y N E. Um and that's Joy of Parenting. And you also mentioned Everyday Blessings by John Cabot Zinn, which is another way of approaching parenting from a mindfulness perspective, how to be present with your kids. So those two are all also resources and we'll look forward to hearing about your book coming out next year. Thank you. Yeah, get out of your mind and into your life for teens, for working directly with adolescents. And that's going to be for them to work on things themselves. Is that right? It it is it is written to an adolescent. Oh wow! um, To an adolescent audience, so adolescents can certainly pick it up and read it and work through it on their own. Um, But I think also that therapists will really find it a useful way to help them uh, discover a way of speaking with adolescents that. Um, makes it easier for them to do adolescent work. Yep. Like all the wonderful things you've you've given us little tasty tidbits of today. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jen. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, well, it's been great talking with you, Louise, and uh, 
um, you know, you're doing such great work, not just in, in adolescent work, but also all over the world. You are, you are still traveling a little bit. Yes, thank Sorry, you. I am there. trying. <laughs> <laughs> I am traveling a little bit. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I suppose leaving Australia means you travel quite a long distance to get almost anywhere else. But <laughs> yeah, we are a long way from everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, we appreciate except traveling. New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yep. Well, thanks for taking out the time to talk with us today. It's just been great hearing from you, and we look forward to um, to the work that you'll be doing. And you've given us some some nice approaches for the future. Maybe we'll get Lisa Coyne on here to talk about working with kids. So, yeah, I think you'd love to hear from Lisa. And thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to both of you. Great. Well, have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. Yeah, and let's, thank you. And let's, thank you. And let's remind our listeners to check us out at contextualpsychology.org slash podcast to uh to see the podcast and we're also available on itunes so if you want to listen to us there go on itunes search for the uh, acting context podcast and you can subscribe to it that's the most convenient way to listen and of course as we mentioned at the beginning check us out on our facebook page and like us and uh, share this episode and others with your friends and family so that more and more people can get turned on did i forget anything jen no that's i think that's it All right. Yeah. Very cool. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.